Well, I mean, I, I think if we were to look at that that case study and we don't know what their biological markers are. So it's it's very similar to like Dr. James Fallon, who is the neuropsychologist who kind of discovered all of this in that he found out that he also had the brain and genetic markers of a psychopath himself. And he says, you know, and he's a descendant of Lizzie Borden. So that was also a really kind of cool part to his story. But he said, you know, I can look back on the times in my life where I have done really dangerous things for the thrill of it, where I have encouraged my friends to do it, where I probably haven't been the best husband because I'm not really recognizing my wife's, you know, emotional pull towards some things that I could not give two shits about. He goes, but I had a wonderful, loving family and childhood. So I have two of those prongs that are totally out of my control, but one of those prongs actually went the other way for me. So he's like, I get flavors of it, of of sort of psychopathy. Um, and obviously he's doing wonderful work in the world of science. So again, I think it comes back to the genetic markers. You know, maybe this detective and this this offender could have maybe some really traumatic backgrounds, but is there cross wiring in the detective's brain like there is in this offenders that we're saying is a psychopath to where parts aren't lighting up appropriately in certain situations? So I think we have to stick with those three markers and kind of look at comparing those when we compare people's stories. That's Shiloh, a forensic and law enforcement psychologist and the host of the true crime podcast, LA Not So Confidential. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. Based in Los Angeles, Shiloh and her co-host, another psychologist, explore the intersection between crime and psychology, bringing a unique perspective to the true crime space. Shiloh only uses her first name on the podcast, so that's what we're going to do today. For those of you who follow true crime and and the criminal justice system, forensic psychologists most often are only seen on the stand. People like Fred Berlin in the case of the serial murderer Jeffrey Dahmer, or the testimony of famed forensic psychologist Park Dietz, whose testimony in the Andrea Yates case led to it being overturned. But forensic psychologists play a much broader and more nuanced role in law enforcement and criminal justice. At its core, forensic psychology is the practice of psychology as it applies to the law, and it's a way to bring behavioral scientific knowledge and methods to help answer questions arising in criminal, civil, contractual, and other judicial proceedings. They research, they evaluate, and testify on topics such as eyewitness testimony, competency to stand trial, and evaluating insanity. Forensic psychologists also play a role as jury consultants, reducing systemic racism in the criminal justice system, assessing military veterans for service-related compensation, and supporting the mental health of law enforcement officers and detectives. Forensic psychology finds its roots in criminal profiling, which began to emerge in the 19th century when British doctor Thomas Bond profiled the Jack the Ripper murders. In the 20th century, 
Hugo Mustenberg, and William Wundt, two psychologists at Harvard, authored On the Witness Stand, which made the case for the application of psychological research to legal proceedings. The 1954 case of Brown v. Board of Education, the landmark civil rights case that made de facto segregation illegal, was the first time the United States Supreme Court referred to expert opinions by psychologists. Recently, forensic psychology has become popular in the media, including Netflix documentaries like Making of a Murderer, about a man named Stephen Avery, who is both exonerated in one case and convicted of murdering a real estate agent later. In Sons of Our Mother, a documentary about Idaho mother Lori Vallow Daybell, who was convicted of murdering her 16-year-old daughter, Tylee Ryan, and Daybell's son, Joshua Vallow. Fictional portrayals include Dr. Wendy Carr in the television show Mindhunter, Dr. Tara Lewis in the television show Criminal Minds, and George Wong on Law & Order Special Victims Unit, and even a villain, Dr. Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Shiloh comes from a long line of law enforcement professionals, with her mother and father, among others, working as police officers. Prior to becoming a psychologist in 2009, Shiloh was a police officer in the Glendora, California Police Department, a city that's located in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains in Los Angeles County. Shiloh now works as a psychologist for law enforcement officers and has volunteered collecting data on extremist groups for the American Civil Liberties Union as a volunteer investigator and expert witness for the Innocence Project. And she is a doctorate in psychology from Alliant University and a bachelor's from California State University Fullerton. Today, we're going to discuss the true role of criminal psychologists in the criminal justice system, how they support law enforcement and others who often experience some form of trauma, the value of forensic psychology and its limits, her podcast, and where the television and movie portrayals get it right and get it wrong. just wanted to um, thank you for coming on to the podcast and tell you just a little bit about how I originally came across your podcast, which I, I've just absolutely totally enjoyed. Um, I was kind of complaining, actually, to our shared friend, Jason Ursi, and he was saying to me, I, or I was saying to him, that I don't run into a lot of good psychologists or good uh, like profilers or anyone on the behavioral uh, side of the space who sort of speaks openly about it. I run into a lot of people who sort of like feign to be in that space or they're just adjacent to it. And he said, well, I have the perfect podcast for you. It's this podcast called LA Not So Confidential. And I started listening to it and I really, I really love the idea that you guys took some episodes and dug deep into forensics and then did some true crime entertainment stuff. It was a nice blend of what you traditionally get in true crime with some really solid, I think, knocking of a lot of the misconceptions and under, I guess, understanding or gave me some understanding of the role that psychology plays in law. So 
Well, thanks for saying it's a nice blend, because when I sit back and look at it, I think it is a weird-ass blend. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you say that? Um, You know, when Scott and I had this idea, well, I will say when I had this idea, and then I went to Scott, who was my closest friend of several years by 2017 when we decided to start it, he was just like, no. <laughs> what are you even talking about? Um, but I I thought, okay, look, true crime is this huge thing and it's interesting, but there's just no one really talking about it from our perspective and certainly not anyone talking about it who's still working in the field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a void there that we could kind of fill a little bit. And mm-hmm. it took, you know, a little bit of convincing, but then my the best part about Scott, him just being a super creative mind, is he came up with the the title as we were walking back to our offices in downtown LA. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think we we always joke those first few episodes. I know everyone hates their first few episodes Indeed. for, yeah, all sorts of reasons. Um, but we're, I always say, I'm like, we sound like we have sticks up our asses and we are just so like clinical and we didn't want to make any mistakes and say the wrong thing. And by now, and as you can hear in my voice, like that has gone all out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so it's, it, our formula really was, okay, let's just focus on a topic rather than a case because everyone is doing that clearly. And it's an easy thing to do to kind of go back and look at maybe a really high profile case that everyone's into and you know you'll you'll catch a bunch of listeners that way but i said let's just start with a, a concept a phenomenon a disorder that you see in forensic psychology we'll give everyone the clinical research behind that and then we'll highlight not really super deep dives but we'll highlight some cases that have that element to it so for whatever reason it worked you know i don't think it's for everyone because of the clinical research way that we approach it, but it it certainly fit in a void that was there, and and yeah, just totally surprises me the way that it works. That actually makes me wonder. Do you? And you may have a read on this, but do you know what kinds of people sort of gravitate toward your podcast? Uh, well, we certainly know the people that are more communicative with us and reach out. Uh, certainly, there are a lot of Not necessarily younger people, but people looking to get into a certain tradecraft or career. And that could be younger or it could be someone's ready to make a switch midlife, kind of like Scott and I both did. Uh, So, you know, we have people that are studying and kind of saying like, oh, this stuff interests me, but I don't know exactly where to fit in. Like, am I interested in criminology or forensic psych or maybe just law enforcement? Um, so we get a lot of really curious folks that way. It's been really cool now that we've been doing this over six years. There have been people that have started forensic psychology doctoral programs that have now finished and are graduating wow. <laughs> and they wow. send us pictures. I know, oh, um, so we've gotten graduation announcements. Um, it, we kind of feel like we have our own little cadre of baby forensic psychologists out there, but it really, it, it shocks us of the people who are right in on certain topics that just kind of grab them or speak to them for whatever reason. And and you can imagine it can be quite emotional and activating for people when we were talking about mental health disorders. And 
you know, for just for an example, we have done three episodes total on looking at the phenomenon of the incel movement. And we did one really early on, way, way back. And Scott and I had kind of offline taken that and developed it into a training that we have given to different law enforcement entities, some private companies, you know, associations in the law enforcement world. And we finally, there was some more research that came out. So we finally covered the updated research in a couple of episodes. But it always grounds us because when we first had that first episode come out, we had an individual write in self-identifying as an incel, but probably in his 50s and really laid out this beautiful email about just, you know, his experience. And he hasn't ever once thought to act out violently, which is great because that that helps push the the, the narrative that we're trying to make of a very few people acting out violently does not mean we need to demonize this entire population of folks. But, you know, it'll be things like that that catch someone's eye or ear, I guess, in this case, and they let us know they're listening and that they appreciate it. And we've had some wonderful criticism as well. I mean, and I mean that sincerely, like coming from a really good place where people will be experts in certain fields and they will correct us on things. And we absolutely love that type of feedback. I mean, that's just in our work in forensic psychology and psychology in general, it's just always evolving. So we want to make sure we're we're doing that as well. And that's probably one of the benefits of having practitioners who are in the field. Like two things really caught my attention there. One, you know, it makes total sense that your experience and the work you're doing would influence your podcast. But it kind of says something about your podcast that the ideas and things that you explore on the podcast can actually influence the work too. That sort of suggests that it's sort of solid. And then the other thing about that 50-year-old incel um, getting in touch with you, it's very interesting. So in some of my mental health work, I've worked with a lot of 20-somethings and teenagers who have some of those thoughts and feelings. And it's actually... I am very sympathetic to them because not so much because of their views, but because very much they're, they're very much in pain Yeah, and they're absolutely. very much trying to sort the world. And I think it, it, there's, there's an element to looking through these things through that kind of, through the lens of other people's hurt and even understanding why some people don't do something super negative because of it and why some do it. The one thing I wanted to ask you about, kind of jumping back and sort of thinking about, you know, I know you come from a law enforcement background and a family um, of law enforcement officers. They seem to be dotted all over. And I was just curious, what what was it that led you into law enforcement and becoming an officer and then later making the transition to psychology? Yeah, I've asked myself that a lot because it certainly wasn't my intention. Um, it's so weird because I I pride myself on being a uber organizer, planner, you know, ten year trajectory, all planned out, and um, I never oh, wanted how to be. Rarely does it work that way? <laughs> I never wanted to be a cop. I never wanted to be a psychologist. Um, never say never. I guess I said I never marry a cop. Let me see how that's gone. Um, 
So yeah, my parents were were deputies here in Los Angeles. My mom, my dad, my stepdad, and you know they took the sort of traditional career paths as, as you have to, especially working the sheriff's department out here in LA. You work the jails, then you go to patrol, yeah. and then you get some jail time. As oh, you get some jail time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I, my my parents divorced when I was very, very young. I don't even remember us all living in the same house together. But my my mom, my dad, my stepdad all had a fantastic relationship. My parents had a great co-parenting relationship. And I was just surrounded by people that were very functional, but we just had wild stories at the dinner table. And my mom in particular, I think is was was someone that I sort of leaned into and gravitated towards to listen to her stories because she was a woman. And as I got older to realize that it was really quite something to be a woman working in law enforcement in the 70s. Mm. And, you know, some of the funny stories that kind of clicked for me later of like, oh, you were made to drink alcohol by your training officers to pass training so you wouldn't you know, so you would be one of the guys. And like you wouldn't rat them out. What? Basically. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. Like, because they got something on you now, right? That reminds um, me of that episode that you guys did where you explored the story of that one female officer who had – do you know which one I'm talking about? Where we she got, just yeah. did one on, like, cop love triangles yes, <laughs> that ended in that's murder. that's the one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. There was kind of this – this big partying culture in that case. And not that that was so, I mean, there's certainly a drinking culture in law enforcement, but, you know, I just, I heard those stories probably at a relatively uh, appropriate age, but then later I was like, what the hell was going on? Like, so, so why yeah. didn't you want to be a law enforcement officer? Um, I really just chalk it up to kids kind of want to do something better and beyond what their parents did. And so I think they mm -hmm. set a bar for me. I found the criminal justice world absolutely fascinating and interesting. And when I went into undergrad, I double majored in criminal justice and psychology because I knew there was a good overlap there, but I was much, much more involved in the criminal justice side of things, you know, being the criminal justice student association president and kind of delving into that world. And then I was sort of taking these psychology classes over here too, that, I really, really loved, and they were translating. It just felt like it was sort of marrying up nicely. But I really thought that something that could work with my skill set, which was really in like writing and, um, you know, just this curious mind that I had, investigative wise, would have been a better fit. Now, on the other side of it, I, I hear this all the time. I think it's a very naive way to think of like, okay, what, you're just going to go be a detective? No, you got to be a cop first and you got to get those those skills on the street honed in. Um, but they are so different. They really are different. I know from my experience yeah. working with detectives and police officers, it's like one of those things like when we're doing, um, when we're developing people inside organizations, it's very fascinating. You have like, you can almost put people in a kind of chart. You have these like, high performing people who have a high potential for like the next job, right? So those would be like the officers who are performing really great, but they have a great potential for the next job mm -hmm. that 
it's not the minds of detectives are not necessarily going to be your highest performing officers. One, because they may not enjoy it as much. And two, because it takes a whole different kind of analytical as opposed to reactionary thing. And I recently did an interview with a former homicide detective and he was like, oh, no, I was a great cop. I was a terrible homicide. (laughs) (laughs) Was that Kevin? Yes, Kevin Grogan. (laughs) I I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. So, you know, what I did is I, I when I was in college, I went and got a job as a police cadet at my local police department, which was just to kind of get a behind the scenes idea, start getting something on my resume. But I really had my sights set on the California Department of Justice, which most bureaus of um, justice and states are are like your state's own mini FBI, if you will. And you could go in with just a bachelor's degree and become a special agent. And I thought, perfect. That's That just sounds awesome. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And then when I ended up graduating, the whole state of California was on a major, major hiring freeze. Ooh. So the months start ticking by, and here I am working some part-time at the police department as a cadet. and Eating ramen noodles? Well, you know, a little bit. A lot of coffee because I was also working part-time at Starbucks as a barista. Oh, wow. Oh, no. <laughs> but I'm like, I have my bachelor's degrees now. Like, i got to get a real job here. So – I thought, well, okay, I don't know how long this is going to last. I can't sit around waiting. I'm I'm just going to go federal. I'll go to the federal level, but you needed you needed experience and um you couldn't just weasel your way in with a bachelor's degree. So I thought the FBI is where I will go and you could go in under certain tracks. Either you were an attorney, an accountant, a linguist, or a cop and you have some law enforcement experience. So since I already had my foot in the door at the police department, I went to my captain who was had sort of made our department renowned in the area for being very female officer friendly. We had the most numbers of female officers of this smaller Glendale. agencies. Glendora. 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 Yeah, yeah. So I asked him if they would hire me if I applied. And he said, absolutely. You know, just give me a handful of good years. I know this is probably a stepping stone for you, um, but we're going to invest in you. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I will. I'll I'll do it to the best of my ability. So yes, I mean, I went into it knowing that it was a stepping stone, but also I wanted to soak up every little experience that I could. And really, I, I would not trade it for the world. It was wonderful Uh, I had my share, even for a little city. I mean, we're talking 60, 60 sworn officers at this department. Somehow I became that traditional shit magnet, as we call it. And within a four-year period, I was involved in two officer-involved shootings, which Mm. was unheard of. And, um, you know, those, those were pretty... I would say yeah, one of most, them. Most police officers are never even near no. a gun being fired. Yeah, it's not in the line of duty. Right, yeah. right, and you know, one was was pretty traumatic. And what it, happened? So, with with that one, it was a a nine one one hang up call. And since you've worked in and around law enforcement, you know, that is such a common call that, you know, a kid is playing with a phone or someone accidentally hits 911 is like, oh shit, and hangs up the phone. So we get these all the time. And 
9.7 times out of 10, they're just a false alarm, right? So, but you have to check on every single one of them. So this came out as a 911 hang-up call. We worked in one man car. So you didn't work with a partner in the same car, but a call like this, you would send two officers to it to check it out. So it was it was assigned to a, another officer. And then I actually happened to be standing in dispatch in the station when the call came out. And I was the station was pretty close. And I'm like, oh, I'll 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 go back them up. I'll I'll head over there. So my partner who was already out there on the road, he gets there first and he parks and the house in question is at the very end of a cul-de-sac. And he starts walking up the street. A couple of beats later, I get there, I park, I'm walking. He's probably about uh, maybe like 15 feet ahead of me. And so we walk up and you're just kind of listening, right? Kind of, it's it's middle of the night. So taking everything in. With yeah, taking everything this. in, kind of see if there's anything, you know, you hear a ruckus anywhere or anything like that. Nothing. So he walks up near the front door and I'm probably still back like at the the next neighbor's driveway and the door flies open and this woman comes running out and just like books it down the street and then a dog is chasing after her <laughs> and I'm oh, like wow. what you're just trying to take this in and I look at her and she locks eyes with me and I tell her to stop and she just gives me this look like you're insane lady and just keeps going and so, I mean, you can imagine how, you know, kind of odd and disorienting in a sense that you is. You don't know, chase her in the Yeah, or like, is this a dog attack? Like, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And by the time I turn around to kind of look back at the house, there's, I see a, a an outline, a silhouette of a man walk to the front door, and then I just see muzzle flashes. And mind you, my partner was right there at the side of the door. So I take cover. Um, The door closes as soon, you know, as quick as it had kind of opened. No idea where the suspect is. No idea where my partner is. Um, And at some point, my partner and I reunite. He has been shot through and through in the palm of his hand. His gun is jammed and it's covered in blood. So I'm trying to clear the malfunction in his weapon, but it's so slippery. If you have never felt human blood in large amounts, <laughs> it is the slipperiest substance ever. So essentially we realize, okay, um, we don't know where the suspect is, but my partner clearly and needs medical attention. Defenseless in that moment. You're yeah. trying to clear his gun. He doesn't have a hand. Right. It's a bad, bad Right. Right. So as you know, I put out all the radio traffic after the the shooting part happened, even before he and I sort of reunite. Um, So everyone's on their way and we know that. So we we know the house will be contained um, and a perimeter will be set up. And we realize getting him medical help is probably the, the priority for us at that point. But it was this element of we're we're now in the backyard of the neighbor's He's totally out of functionality, right? And mm-hmm. I need to be the cover officer for him as we kind of leapfrog these fences and walls to go backyard to backyard to get out of it. Because remember, again, it's a cul-de-sac. So we're trying right. to get back out to the end of the cul-de-sac. And I would say the scariest part, I mean, obviously being shot at is 
terrifying, but there was one backyard that we were in where we heard some rustling and we just kind of looked at each other like, here it goes. Like the firefight is going to go down right now. Like I knew it was the suspect and it was just going to be me, right? Because he's out of commission Mm -hmm. and I don't know what it was. It must've been a raccoon or something, but nothing ever presented itself. And we just leapfrogged over the walls. Well, you know, he would go, I would cover him and and so on until we- These are like the stone type walls and neighborhoods? It was everything, or, you know, yeah, it was, it, it was fences, what divided houses. Or, so fences, um, yeah. Not- the longest <laughs> trip through a cul-de-sac in your life. It really was. And, um, you know, there's one thing like going over the wall in the academy is one thing. Honestly, I didn't find it that difficult. But when you got 40 pounds of gear on and you're trying to get your butt over a wall or a fence, it is hard. But there's nothing to light a fire under you like thinking <laughs> there's there's a bad guy behind you with what you know is a gun. And we just we we hopped on out of there. So. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it. You know, he he was fine. He recovered really well. Um, I uh, aside from the physical trauma of that incident, you know, it was really a long, drawn out process with my department afterwards um, and the scrutiny that came down, and that was almost because they're more examining traumatic. all of your actions and and not very experienced at it. Again, you know, being a small department. Um, and there were some political issues at play. There were some, um, in my opinion, some you know discrimination at play. Just made it really, really difficult. And I had a very unpleasant, shall we say, interaction with a police psychologist as a result of that, which is also just more strange as to why I do that job now. But you know, time and time again, well, now maybe not. maybe not, maybe not, but maybe. That's why. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, because I certainly take it into my work now. And when I do officer involved shooting debriefings, um, you bet that I'm I'm taking care of those folks. But I do hear from them that some of the hardest part is the aftermath with their department and feeling like, you know, you're being judged for something that you had to do in, in a split second. Yeah. And I think, you know. The public wants to understand things. The supervisors need to understand things. You've got to be able to look at processes and procedures, but it's hard to be judged for what you did in a moment, in a very dangerous moment. And I think even, I imagine in your current work, even the gentlest touch may not be gentle enough. It's it's the best you can, but it's got to be hard for people, no matter how how good the person on the other side of it is. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't know what the exact fix is because you're right. There has to be a process to this. And we owe that to the public and to the community uh, to make sure that we're doing things right. And we have an immense amount of responsibility I say we say I go into this like we talk because, <laughs> you know, speaking from the police perspective, perspective. that it it is very serious. Also, you know, we you, as a society, right? Like, because yeah. there is something to be said for the idea that we ask people to go out and defend us and protect us and put out fires for us and fight right. in the military for us. So I think that there there is probably a special obligation that we have to those people. Well, uh, of course. And, you know, you're equipping someone with the right to apply deadly force. And that 
cannot be taken lightly. It shouldn't be taken lightly. But, you know, when you are the person, the officer put in that position to do it, it is, um, it's astonishing. I mean, I, I, I teach a class now on mindset in critical incidents and you can teach all the classes in the world you want. There is only so much you can teach about being in that moment and what is happening to your biology and how to train to slow that down. I mean, we're talking, trying to override millions of years of evolution. Like it's Mm -hmm. almost an impossible ask. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. And and one of the things that I know from my time in uh, like covering reporting, you know, you get the headlines, you get the fill in the blank, but when it comes down to it, like most of the officer involved shootings that were, let's say questionable, well, or even the ones that were good, like, mm-hmm. it, and this was when I was reporting in New York, it comes down to like fight or flight, anxiety, things like that, that essentially when you're putting in a situation that's either life or death or you perceive to be life or death, because sometimes the perceptions are off that it's, it's like a, you respond with muscle memory, right? You're training mm-hmm. and then your reptilian brain. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the two yeah. things you got. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild to think that we expect human beings to do that. And, um, you know, there's, wonderful training out there. And, um, you know, that's been kind of an area I've been dipping my toe into lately is learning more about just police training in general and how we're doing it and trying to keep up on the research in those areas. It's just as fascinating as everything else. So one thing I was totally curious about, so, you know, you, you work with law enforcement officers right now in the psychological space. And I remember, uh, cops would like roll their eyes when we were in New York at like two things. We had something that was like the equivalent of a force investigation uh-huh. unit there. They called it something different. Um, but but when those guys showed up to investigate the cops, the and these were police detectives who investigated the cops on their shootings, yeah. everyone's eyes roll. It was like keep away. Like they would send <laughs> they would send officers away <laughs> from the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the and then the other. I roll was when someone said, okay, it's time to go out to Queens, which meant you were going to psych services. Oh, okay. Medical services. Yeah. Here come the eye rolls. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just curious about what that job is like and what it entails. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's (laughs) the eye rolls are still there. It's, it's much (laughs) better than it used to be from what I understand. (laughs) Um, But we have a long way to go. So where I work, it's so nice because we we have the oldest psychological services in law enforcement in the country. We've been doing it over 50 years now. And I think that's really afforded us a lot of evolution and a lot of ways in which to figure out how to chip away at that stigma for either receiving mental health services voluntarily or you know, something that automatically sends you to the the psychologist. And one thing we we do nicely is that every psychologist is not just sitting in their office in their ivory tower waiting for people who got in trouble to come see mm. them. We are actually assigned about five different units or stations or divisions in the department where we are there 
their assigned consulting psychologist. So, oh, so you're able to develop relationships with them. Yes. So oh, it, it's a little way of it, – it's not quite like embedded. We don't have an office per se in a station, but we are expected to you know, be out there a certain amount of our time during the week and we can spend that however we want, which is kind of awesome. You know, we can go on ride-alongs. I would say the most common thing is that we show up to briefings and roll calls and, you know, you check in with the watch commander and they're like, all right, doc, I can give you 10 minutes today. Or, hey, the, mm. you know, the streets are popping off. I can give you five minutes today, doc. And I'm, I will take whatever they give me because I, I have a captive audience and I can, for whatever time I have, give them a little spiel um, for some mental health wellness. And I talk about everything. I talk about relationship skills. You know, in February around Valentine's Day, you're going to hear me talk about relationships and how to talk to your partners. We're going to talk about, um, you know, maybe what to expect that you would feel after a critical incident. So when you get in one, you don't think you're going crazy. You know that it's normal. Yeah. And, um, and the, that's actually a fascinating thing. So you, so you guys really are sort of consultants to them. It just yeah. reminds me, like, uh, I remember I when I was taking this psychological first aid um, course at Hopkins, mm-hmm. it, one of the lectures, and it, it was interesting because I have training in mental health, but like this just crystallized it to me. They had this example of, I think it was like a flood and a bunch of houses were destroyed and other things had happened. And they gave us uh, three sort of like mock clients who come into the shelter where you're doing psychological first aid. And I think the first one is like crying and is a mess and hyperventilating. And so like obviously triage that person over for mm-hmm. psychological care. Then they had sort of like an in-between. And then they had somebody who like came in perfectly fine. And one of the things that they taught us, which I thought was really important was like, oh, you need to worry about that person who came in perfectly <laughs> fine because <laughs> they're yeah. not going to be. And that humans react very differently to trauma. So there's not like a one size fits not all. Not at these all. Situations. Yeah. And, I, and that's part of the reason when you said that part about like helping people feel like it's normal. Yeah. That idea that they can have different reactions. They can have reactions that seem to make no sense to them or even convince them that they're okay when in reality, you know? Yeah. I mean, a big part of that preliminary trauma work or, you know, we might call it a diffusing if we do like a group diffusing afterwards um, and then follow that up with a debrief later on is psychoeducation. It's, you know, let's hear what happened from your perspective just in these first, you know, couple days after, fresh after, but also let me provide you with some information of how you may have already felt or how you're going to feel in the next few days. And, you know, the more preventative work we can do is the better. So that's why I take advantage of those opportunities to do that. I I was just curious if that's the kind of stuff that helps uh, keep like acute stress from turning into PTSD. (laughs) Theoretically, yes. Uh, The research doesn't really support that um, robustly. But, you know, I found in just the weird lines of work that I have done in forensic psychology, if I can reach one person and that Mm. matters for them to the point because you have to look at kind of the snowball effect, right? If you you equip someone with knowing that 
they're going to have waking recollections of an incident and feel a little hypervigilant afterwards and maybe have some avoidance tendency tendencies, and that's totally normal, then I'd rather have that person go, okay, this is normal and I know it'll pass, rather mm-hmm. than the person who feels all those things, doesn't know how to cope with it, maybe starts drinking so they can feel, you know, get to sleep better, numb out a little bit. And now they're creating a whole other storm of problems. It might not be PTSD, but they might be creating bad mm-hmm. habits that are not healthy in helping them through what they've gone through. And I mean, look, giving them tools. Yeah. 70% of us as by the time we reach adulthood or in our lives, not by the time we reach adulthood, experience a traumatic incident and you don't have people walking around with PTSD. It's not something that the human mind is resilient. Yeah. Yeah. I just told me once. Oh, Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he put it this way. He was this great doctor or he still is a great doctor. His name is Mahul Mankad. And he, he said to me, because we were we were working with a client who had post-traumatic stress disorder, and I was asking all these questions about it because I was fairly new. And he said, the mystery, Jason, is not what causes post-traumatic stress disorder. He said, the mystery really is what makes the human mind so resilient that we don't all have it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah that's a great way to put it, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, kind of circling back to when we were talking about getting into psychology, when I was working as a police officer, my second year in, I had the great idea to go back and get my doctorate because, you know, I still had my sight set on the FBI. And I thought, you just well, didn't feel like you were busy enough. <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm just, you know, I have Did three days I work and four days months. off. <laughs> Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I got it in my head. Well, shoot, if I have a doctor at the FBI, can't tell me no. Uh, No, I I just wanted to make myself the best candidate possible because I knew how, you know, selective they were. And I found a forensic psychology program local. And it it was nice because it was really curated for folks who were working already, working professionals, even though if you worked like a nine to five job, I don't know if it would have worked out really well. Thank goodness I didn't. And I worked a lot of Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights on patrol and then went to school the rest of the week and typed wow. a lot of papers at three in the morning in Glendora sitting in my car. <laughs> Is that like a five-year program? Four years? It was a five-year year program. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Five years. So I had, um, I was able to do that. And in my third and fourth years, I was. And then you decided to retire. Hopefully. Yeah. Right. Cause I was exhausted by then. <laughs> um, no, I, th- my third and fourth years, you actually had to do a part-time practicum. So I was doing patrol on weekends, school during the week, and then part-time internship as well during the week. And then my fifth year, I took a, f- a full leave of absence from the police department to finish my internship um, and do that full time because I was not going to extend this to six years. And that's where I met Dr. Scott, my my podcast partner at internship. What did you, uh, what'd you do as your dissertation? Curious. Huh. So my dissertation was in police psychology, which is also a bit of foreshadowing. Uh, it It wasn't... The secret to dissertation is to do something easy, do something that you can just get through the process with and not make it your life's work. Um, And I had a wonderful professor and who ended up being my dissertation supervision 
chair who already had a database. He had worked with some forensic psychologists, police psychologists in Louisiana who had developed a an assessment tool that was actually to be given to officers pre-employment. And it had it had the ability to essentially predict the 21 most common reasons that officers lose their jobs along their mm. career. So it was a predictive measure. Um, it's called the Impulse, M-P-U-L-S-E. And they just needed work done on it to to build up, you know, the the statistics on it. So it was perfect because my my professor said, hey, who wants to work on this? You have a database all ready to go. You just have to kind of run numbers. My hand shot up so fast <laughs> that um, it sounded good to me. But, you know, it was interesting. I What I ended up, the piece I looked at was if their test could detect when someone was trying to present well, like overly so, mm -hmm. um, and kind of, you know, it's just a very Impressive common, it. yeah, it's just a very, very common thing. We look at non on psych tools and then also um, test attitudes. Like what did they think about really taking this test? Were they taking it seriously? So, I mean, it's a total geeky statistics thing that I did. Um, but each one of us, the students that there are about five of us that worked on it, we had a, a different twist on it. And it was kind of nice because our professor then said, hey, I'm going to submit all of you guys to present at a conference. So you you have oh, cool. to get you have to get your dissertation done a little bit early. But the conference is in Australia. <laughs> we said, nice. OK, done. <laughs> That's so, a great motivator. Yeah. To oh, yeah. Dissertation. So one of the things that I was just uh, so curious about. So you finish your finish your dissertation. You you don't have a job offer at this point. You're still a patrol officer. Is, is so right? my last year of internship, uh, I'm finishing up internship. I'm processing with the FBI. So I had done the interview, the written test, the interview, um, and we're getting to polygraph and background stage. And they gave me a conditional job offer. So here I am coming up on graduation and I have that kind of locked in essentially. And then my internship, which was um, a, a private company who contracted with probation and parole and we worked with, we did sex offender assessment and treatment for folks getting out of prison under those um, mandates. They offered me a job to continue working with them post-graduation. And you picked the known over the unknown? Is that it? Or? Oh, man. There was so much heartache that went into this decision. Um, mm. And I, I always use this as an example with students and other early career psychologists as we're kind of, you know, as I'm mentoring them about different decisions you know, just because it was my trajectory and my focus for so long, it kind of smacked me in the face that I had this other option now. And it was a lovely place to be because I'm picking between two things that were good, two things that I thought I was going to love. And, you know, I think the the cons to going ahead with the FBI kind of outweighed the pros, at least for me at that point in my life. I was married. I didn't have kids. But my husband, ironically, had just started a job at the California Department of Justice, who was hiring now. <laughs> um, so, you know, I couldn't pull him away from anything. And I didn't really want to go to another academy. I mean, I would have, of course. 
But the, the, the kicker for me was that really the FBI can send you anywhere they want. And my mentor for the last 25 years is retired FBI now, but at the time he was the assistant special agent in charge of the Los Angeles field office. And when he said, Shiloh, even I cannot guarantee you come back to LA, that was kind of the last. Kind of sealed the deal. Yeah. And I loved what I was doing in sex offender work. Billings, Montana may not Oh my be. gosh, I know. <laughs> like Detroit, Alaska, that'll be my right. luck. But yeah, I just absolutely loved what I was doing in sex offender work and thought, okay, not everyone can do this, but for some reason I can and, oh, and I'm going to stick with it. It's very interesting to me because when I first did um, some work related to sex offenders, I was convinced that it would be very triggering Mm -hmm. for me and that I wouldn't be able to do it. But what I found was the vast majority of my clients were really good people who didn't want to do bad things and just needed help. And I felt like you had an opportunity in doing that kind of work, you know, even just the the life skills and creating, you know, structure around their lives and helping them with the specific issues that they're worried about, that you could have real positive impact on their lives and Mm -hmm. on society by doing that work. Yeah, I I found that as well. And I I think those were some of my anchors I hung on to and in staying in it for so long. I mean, you know, the, the research shows that sex offender treatment doesn't really have a huge impact on recidivism rates, which could be super disheartening <laughs> if you're getting into that kind of work, because then you're like, what sort of difference am I making? But for, you know, especially the lower risk offenders, I think especially what you're talking about is really impactful. And I do believe that we created more, I'm sorry, we we created- Or supported. Well, mm-hmm. We, we supported these folks in a way that didn't go on to create other victims. Yeah. And, you know, with sex offender treatment, so much of it is situational and opportunistic. And it's not these, you know, uh, super, super deviant situations. Now, those exist and they happen. But if you're looking under the big umbrella of those who act out sexually and rising to the level of a criminal nature – majority of it is really opportunistic. Yeah. Yeah. That there was just the window and the urge and the fill in the blank all collided together. And so yes, the perfect storm of factors is what I always call it. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so from one of the things I was thinking about your podcast and I, you know, I had been reading this American Psychological Association article and it, it it was from somewhere in the 2000s. Um, it was like the mid 2000s and it mentions how sort of like forensic psychology in general has sort of like gained more recognition due to sort of like the portrayals in the entertainment industry, Sons of the Lambs, Law mm-hmm. and Order, a bunch of other, you know, sort of, oh, Criminal Minds, how can I forget Criminal Minds? Oh, yeah. Um, right? But one of the things that the article said and the quote was that you know, they portray forensic psychologists as these omnipresent seers who have clairvoyance, right? They can instantly size up a person and, mm-hmm. and, and tell what's going on, be able to give a profile, and then the rest of the world ends in an arrest because of it. 
like what is the reality of sort of like working with offenders, whether it's like treating them or consulting on cases? What role does the forensic psychologist really play at the ground level or in court or whatever you want to talk about? Is this going to be a whole separate part? Because I could talk so much about this. <laughs> part two, what Shiloh thinks about forensic psychology and media. Um, you know, I, I'm i going back to, I mean, you've taken me right back to Shiloh in, you know, end of high school, early college, reading all of John Douglas's Mindhunter books. And I really did feel like that's what they were doing, at least the way he was portraying it in his writings, right? Like this was sort of this way more art than science, but it had this law enforcement pull to it. It had this psychological pull to it. And I, I found it endlessly fascinating. I even, I even snuck myself into a training with one of the original BAU profilers, Roy Hazelwood, when I wasn't, (laughs) I was just a police cadet and I signed up as if I was a detective and I got in. <laughs> and, and a couple of the detectives I knew, the sex crimes detectives that I worked with were going and they were like, just just put your name down. You work for the police department. Who cares? Whatever. And it was just like my, my mind, uh, my mind was blown. I absolutely, you know, ate up everything he said. He's a wonderful man. And Um, Later, I went back to a class several years after when I was a legit police officer and I told him the story and he got a chuckle out of it. But, you know, that I think that was sort of the lore. And it started with those books written by those first uh, profilers. And then media took off from that and and spun it the way they did, which has certainly done it a disservice. And I, I think the same is with like CSI, right? You know, the forensic sciences. Um, it it's, where everyone thinks that we can instantly get DNA in fifteen minutes. And yes, sir. Yeah, because there's this so. master database of everyone in the world with the, their DNA. Yeah, you just press a button, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So it, but it can be done well. You know, uh, again, coming full circle from the Mindhunter books, when you look at Mindhunter, the TV series that was done. You know, we we love those. But I I was recently, you know, with the the writer's strike going on, I was consulting with a screenwriter who's writing, um, who's working on a project, I'll say that, that includes a forensic psychologist. And it, she's really a blend of like a profiler, forensic psychologist, police psychologist. So I was trying to kind of differentiate these for him. Mm-hmm. But also tell them, like, I know you got to do what you got to do to make people interested. <laughs> tell story, right? Yeah. yeah. But he was very mindful of saying, what are pet peeves? What are things that you would hate to see? Uh, which I think is lovely. And I really appreciated that. Because just like any profession, we can look at media and roll your eyes because you know it's not being done right. And um, we just have a, a shit ton of shows that are on cops and sciences or the psychology behind it. So there's plenty of fodder out there for us to roll our eyes at. But in reality, forensic psychology is huge. I mean, I, I, I think you, in your introduction, explained it so beautifully. I boil it down to wherever that intersection is, that psychology and the legal system overlap, that could be where we are doing our work. And it could mean many, many different things. Traditionally. People kind of think of the expert witness up on the stand 
giving their commentary after they've assessed someone. And certainly that is like the most legal, meaning being part of the legal system, way that forensic psychologists are utilized. But you have, um, it. just if you look at my background and Dr. Scott's background, I've done the sex offender work in the community. He worked as a correctional psychologist. He worked in prisons for many years. You have the law enforcement psychologist piece. You have folks that do child custody evaluations, jury selection, consultation. Just there are unlimited amount of jobs. Yeah. If I look at my class and um, the people I graduated with, we are all doing something different. And it's kind of the beauty of it because you could absolutely pigeonhole yourself and just do one thing and concentrate on it forever. Or you can kind of jump around a little bit with the same basic skill set. Um, I think that just the two biggest camps, if you will, if you were to sort of divide it, is those that have a clinical element to them where they are seeing patients in a clinical way and then the assessment side of it. You can certainly do both, but there are forensic psychologists who just choose to do one or the other. Right, right, right. And that's on both sides, both like the law enforcement side and offender side. I remember um, I had a chance to meet uh, Dr. Fred Berlin, who was the defense psychiatrist in the um, Dahmer case. And it it was a very fascinating conversation because we talked about trial testimony and all that stuff. And I was like, well, what is your day-to-day like? And he's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I evaluate people who are in sex offender treatment programs. And then I talk to people who are worried about whether they're a sex offender. He's like, that is like 95% of my time. And I, I, I just found that so fascinating. Like as somebody who finds like clinical work super rewarding, I recognize that the rest of the world may find it way more boring than the trial testimony and stuff like that. But it really is, I think, the human mind, the ability to help people is quite fascinating. And hence why my favorite psychology show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, is In Treatment. Have you ever seen that? I have seen In Treatment. Yeah. Uh, There were a couple on at that time that were pretty good. Yeah. 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 And I think there are like uh, decent portrayals out there. Um, that was psychoanalysis. So it was really old school. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I uh, one of the things that I, I think is kind of cool about your podcast that I really enjoy is it does sort of like touch on all those different areas where where people are involved. It's very educational. Like I love the ones where you guys start talking about um, like personality disorders for example, you know, like, because when you jump on Reddit, or you jump on Twitter, and everybody's talking about how somebody's a psychopath or a sadist right. or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, no, not everybody who <laughs> kills someone's a psychopath. Not every, no, no, no. So, so I find it very educational from that perspective. And it's, and, and I actually think it's somewhat important because some of these misconceptions can actually be a little dangerous, right? You know, like yeah. super criminal, the, everybody's a psychopath, or, oh, that person isn't a psychopath, so there's no way, like I think of the Andant Saeed case, uh-huh. you know, he's not a psychopath, therefore, I'm like, the vast majority of people who kill their girlfriend or ex-girlfriend probably are not psychopaths. <laughs> so I think some of that can be helpful. Yeah, I, I think the podcast has been a way that 
Scott and I, you know, we are both people who want to do all the things. We are not someone who, and and I don't mean pigeonhole in a bad way. If someone finds their thing and that's what they can stay finding meaning and purpose in and create an absolute expertise in it. I, you know, I, on, on some days I absolutely wish that that's where my mind was at, but we are endlessly curious about all these other areas of forensic psychology that we might not be doing every day in our jobs. And so the podcast is a way for us to say, oh, you know, that I'm I'm about to go back to one right now where- You get to explore. Yeah, we get to explore. We get to look at the research. Um, you know, I have been officially out of sex offender work for a little over a year now. I had a private practice alongside the work that I'm doing now where I, I was still doing it. But we're going to circle back to sexual sadism and, you know, to really break that down for folks and look at how that works in conjunction with psychopathy and how, again, incredibly rare that is, mm. you know, is, is just something nice to go back and revisit and see where the research has come with it. But also maybe this other totally random disorder that, you know, we just want to kind of be curious Explore. and figure it out and we're interested and. Um, so it's I so funny too, because like, it's, a, it, it's, it's interesting to me. I, like I've worked with two people that pretty sure were sadists. One was the father of a client of mine, a teenage client of mine, and one was, um, an adult and it was very interesting. So the adult guy was a manager at a collection agency. He had found a true profession that was a beautiful outlet for his sadism because it yep. was like a part of the job. He went a little too far, needed to dial it back a little bit, but he had found an outlet. This other guy, the father, had not um, found an outlet. But I'm willing to bet I could take either of them, put them at the dinner table with the vast majority of people, and no one would have a bloody clue. Sure. Yeah, sure. No yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to expert testimony, you know, of course – an expert, you know, 95% of their time is spent doing the thing that they're an expert at, whether you're a psychologist or a plumber, because that's how you have to build your expertise is doing the work to then be able to speak to it in a court of law and be voir dired as an expert. So, you know, these just aren't is necessarily like a danger in that, like a danger in you as a person who does this, seeing sort of like sex offenders, psychopaths and sadists around every corner? Or? Um... Well, I, I think you can certainly start to create your own lens, kind of like you and I were talking about, you know, maybe because we know the dark underbelly of the crime in our city that we're we're kind of looking through that lens, right? So that might oh, keep trust us me, from I'm I, I throw MMPI scales on people when I'm in the grocery store. I'm like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, we all do that. But I, I think that's part of our responsibility is to check check that perspective and what, you know, are we sort of, quote unquote, diagnosing someone too fast just in, in the grocery store line? Yes. Are we? <laughs> yes, Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> um, are we sort of looking through the lens of whatever our profession is in terms of how we're acting, how we're trying to uh, maybe protect our kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there there can definitely be the danger, but we we got to go back to what's the reality. You know, we're seeped in this all the time. However, take precautions, be safe, but we can't live in a bubble either. Yeah. Or we can't blame everyone or, or point our finger and say, oh, I bet that guy's up to no good. 
Right, because we never, like, we never um, live our lives. I think of people who have been following the case of um, Abby Williams and uh, uh, Libby Germain, the the mm-hmm. two teenage girls who were killed in Delphi, Indiana, and you know the suspect. You've got the suspect in that case, and then you have this other guy who was another who was like collecting child porn or right. I get, and who was communicating with them. And then I was watching a documentary where like, there's this third guy who may have been in touch with um, one of the girls. And I, you know, I, I've been watching and listening to some of the posts and people talking about, I'm never going to let my kids out. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, well, like, yeah, that yeah. is the world you live in. Right. Yeah. Again, it goes back to just what our conversation was at the beginning. You you can't live your life like that. Be smart and um, situationally aware. But yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of have those thoughts all the time. You know, one of the areas I really like to dive into the research on and, and attend trainings is in threat assessment and mass casualty incidents. And, you know, it, for a time there, it's like, all right, I'm not going to the movies anymore, but Uh now it's like, okay, I positioned my kid in a place that would be the best route of exit for us. I'm aware of people coming in and out, but other than that, I'm going to enjoy the show. Right. Because it's all ultimately, all of this stuff is about quality of life. And I'm like you too. When I sit in a restaurant, I'm like, okay, which way is going to get out? (laughs) where's the door but then i enjoy my meal and 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 just let it go i was gonna just ask you really quickly about those two things you brought up like um the sexual sadism and psychopathy like what do you think when it comes to the forensic space and thinking about the public what do you think the biggest misconceptions about those are about those diagnoses or disorders yeah yeah um that sexual oh i think the biggest misconception is that sexual sadism is um, always means we're talking about a serial killer when there are people that, uh, so let me back up. People can be interested in sadism in a sexual way where it is not disordered. And clearly we have you know, the BDSM community that takes safety and health very seriously and actually have found to make more meaningful and close relationships because they find a lot of trust in their partners in which they can sort of explore some of these non-normative sexual practices. But I think when the average person hears sexual sadism, they think we're talking about serial killers. Um, And you can have sexual sadism, be diagnosed with that, and it might just mean that you're interested in those things, but it's causing you distress it doesn't mean you've acted out criminally. And that that's what we look at with a lot of the paraphilias, which are, yeah. you know, a more atypical sexual interest. Um, but if it's that not really, is that, that's really a threshold, right? That it causes distress or dysfunction in life, but there can be a sort of sub therapeutic. Yeah, that that's, it's really interesting because I, I was going back and doing some research in this area again, and looking at how the DSM breaks this down. And Dr. Anna Salter, who's worked with sex offenders and sadistic sex offenders for a very long time, she talks about how she doesn't necessarily agree that 
you know, as the criteria is laid out in the DSM that someone has to be distressed by, and and I'm going to use pedophilia as an example, Mm -hmm. they don't have to internally be distressed by that or, or have acted out criminally to be diagnosed with that. She's like, there are pedophiles that have not acted out criminally, but are also not distressed about it. They're totally perfectly fine with it. Um, And I agree with her that, you know, it doesn't kind of match up, but with any, yeah, Yeah. with any mental health disorder, I mean, we don't want to slap a diagnosis on someone sort of willy nilly, right? It needs to be causing them some distress in the sense that that's why they're perhaps seeking out, yeah, seeking out mental health treatment. So, so there is that kind of old school criteria that's on there. Well, I think about like the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis, you, you know, which is, you know, a broad sort of a broad diagnosis. And it also, you know, would include in theory, all psychopaths, but it doesn't really entirely because you've got some who are not, or not, uh, that's not fair, but a lot of the symptoms you see in antisocial personality disorder, you could in theory be a psychopath who has no criminal behavior, who doesn't display those things. How about that? Indeed. I think of, I think of some past bosses I've had. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> totally and, functional, and total that, psychopath. Yeah, that leads me to probably what the biggest misnomer is about a psychopathy is that it is a diagnosis, but it actually is not. It's not an official diagnosis. And... I don't know if it, it it keeps getting sort of proposed as to like whether or not we should make it one antisocial personality disorder would kind of capture that. But I've always thought the big challenge is if the medical community identifies a definition of uh, psychopathy, mm-hmm. then it seeps into court as potential defenses. I've always thought that was the worry about that and also sadistic personality disorder. I may totally be wrong, but I've always wondered about that. Yeah, I I see that that worry. Um, And the best research we have right now shows that psychopaths have three distinct elements to them that we see uh, as a major difference in non-psychopaths. And two of those are biologically based. So you have a genetic component, the MAOA gene, the warrior gene, is something that is, uh, we're, we're able to mark that. In, and I'm not a geneticist, so I don't know if I'm using the right lingo. Sort but of that, suppressed, yes. Yeah, that, that, that's something that is, is present with them. And then the second one is, um, you know, areas of the brain that are responsible for aggression that light up in ways that they don't with non-psychopaths and don't light up other areas of empathy, the opposite, don't light up when they quote unquote should. Um, so we have those it's so, two. It's so interesting. Tell me, tell me this about empathy. And it's very interesting to me about psychopaths and em- empathy. It's that I almost feel like, and this is just a Jason theory, that they have amazing cognitive empathy in the sense that they know how to read people. They understand people like on a cognitive level, but it just doesn't translate into that emotional empathy that we really define collectively as empathy. Because I I just think certain people have a gift for reading other people, and that's part of what makes it 
so hard to detect, diagnose, treat, <laughs> pick. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like we need another word for empathy that really just hones in on the cognitive piece, being able to relate. And, you know, it it is certainly an art of theirs to size people up and mimic and, um, you know, take in all of this information and stimuli and then kind of put it back out into the world, how they think people want them to react or what's going to get their needs met. But yeah, those those two biological markers, and then the third leg of the stool that we see with psycho or with psychopaths is generally some severe childhood trauma. So, mm-hmm. you know, those three markers aren't present for antisocial personality disorder. So, um, yeah, certainly they would meet the threshold for antisocial personality disorder, but not in the reverse. Do we have any idea why? Like people go one way or the other. I remember one time talking to a detective in New York and he was working on a case where it was like, it was a gang related case, but he clearly in his mind was like this guy, like, you know, his, his armchair was that this guy kind of fit fit the definition, but it struck him because he was like, and his life story is just like mine. Hmm. Like he was like, it's down to the T, like the traumatic incidents, the divorce, the fill in the blank. And, you know, like he was interviewing the guy and the guy's talking about his feelings. And he's like, I have a lot of those same feelings, but I decided, but, and this is the part that really got him. He was like, these are all the things that drove me to go into law enforcement and try and create some like control and order in the world that he funneled it into something good. And do we have any idea what causes people to go one way or the other? Well, I mean, I, I think if we were to look at that that case study and we don't know what their biological markers are. So it's it's very similar to like Dr. James Fallon, who is the neuropsychologist who kind of discovered all of this in that he found out that he also had the brain and genetic markers of a psychopath himself. Interesting. And he says, you know, and he's a descendant of Lizzie Borden. So that was also a really cool part to his story. Um, But he said, you know, I can look back on the times in my life where I have done really dangerous things for the thrill of it, where I have encouraged my friends to do it, where I probably haven't been the best husband because I'm not really recognizing my wife's you know, emotional pull towards some things that I could not give two shits about. He goes, but I had a wonderful, loving family and childhood. So I have two of those prongs that are totally out of my control, but one of those prongs actually went the other way for me. So he's like, I get flavors of it, of of sort of psychopathy. Um, and obviously he's doing wonderful work in the world of science. So again, I think it comes back to the genetic markers, you know, maybe this detective and this this offender could have maybe some really traumatic backgrounds, but is there cross wiring in the detective's brain? Like there is in this offenders that we're saying is a psychopath um, to where parts aren't lighting up appropriately in certain situations. So I think we have to stick with those three markers and, and kind of look at comparing those when we compare people's stories. That makes perfect sense. The, I was curious, do you have favorite episodes that you guys have done? How many episodes have you guys done so far? Oh my gosh, we just recorded 152. Um, 
So we have 152 I plan to retire long episodes. before 152. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so so did we. Um, we actually, up until a little over a year ago, we were just putting out two episodes a month. Um, and then we decided to put out episodes weekly. So, so yeah, that's really ramped up. And then we have, we just hit our 50th live stream, which we started doing during the oh, pandemic. Nice. And that's kind of just feels like another, like, what the heck are we doing here? <laughs> but <laughs> you never imagined this. The podcast no, part. no. Um, you know, we are, are like, I kind of explained the formula to our, our forensic psych episodes earlier. And what we started doing when we put out weekly content is something people were asking us to do, which was to review true crime documentaries. We would get emails all the time. Like, can you guys please tell me just what you think of the keepers or making a murder or what have you? And we're like, that's not what we do. <laughs> um, and we didn't want to like answer everyone's email with all of our you know, dissertation of thought. So we started doing that monthly. And then we also started looking at historic Los Angeles cases, like vintage mm -hmm. cases from the turn of the century. Black and Dahlia. well, so <laughs> here's, here's the interesting piece. So with the, the law enforcement agencies that Scott and I are by, employed by, we actually have to stay away from quite a few Los Angeles centric ah, cases, you know, the more cases. recent ones, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, which people are like, but you're called LA not so confidential. And I'm like, yes, I know. There's still some that some is very confidential. confidential right? <laughs> we we still need our pensions one day. Okay, uh, we're we're good government workers. But um, but what we have found is that we could go back in history to where a lot of people are dead, and look at Los Angeles around this time and some of the cases. And I mean, the Black Dahlia is just the tip of the iceberg. There's some crazy, horrific cases. Yeah, um, has some interesting man. crime. Yeah, and for us to go back and look at it, one, we can offer a little bit more conjecture than we can on a regular episode, and we're doing that with just the resources and documents that we have to go back that far. But those honestly have been so fun. I mean, just from like kind of a nerdy historical perspective looking at society and culture back then, like what made Los Angeles, what it was in those different time periods, how women were treated, how children were treated. Um, the it gives you a chance to just sort of explore what life was like during yeah. different times. Yeah. So those have been, to me, I think it's just been a breath of fresh air. It's, it's a different research style. Um, and it's fun to just put together a story, which is what we hadn't done so much in the past. But of, of our solid forensic episodes, I think um, the ones that have to do with delusional disorders are always my favorite because mm. they're just so wild to wrap your head around. Yeah. You know, the Capgras syndrome, the folia de, you know, some uh -huh. of those have just been really interesting. Folia that's like the shared psychosis. Right. And, yeah. The, um, one of the interesting things for me that, and I worked with a guy who was like this, and I can be a bit like this sometimes, like jump down the rabbit hole with the client who's delusional. Yep. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> get to the point where the world makes sense to you. It's so fun to like translate yep. it. Uh, translate it back to people who are like, I don't understand why they're doing X. Oh, no, no, no. It makes perfect sense. In their head. Uh -huh. <laughs> that, that, that. 
it's one of the really interesting things about being adjacent or in the space of psychology is you probably, it, it's really interesting because I feel like you get such a better understanding and greater compassion for people. And sometimes people will talk about how like, where they're talking about something that's very, let's say, clinical. And I often think that it's like, it's not just that it's clinical. It's really that like, once you go to the place where the person makes sense, a lot of those things that don't make sense that make you emotional, kind of dissipate and disappear. Yeah, I was gonna, I, I was gonna ask you just in sort of like for any closing thoughts or remarks that you might have. I'm, I'm generally curious about what value you think that forensic psychology can sort of bring to society and victims, law enforcement, even perpetrators, but anything you want to talk about, just go for it. Oh man. Um, well, the, the reason people consume true crime, the reason people consume criminal minds, I think is this innate desire to want to understand why humans do the things that they do, and especially when it involves criminal behavior. And, you know, the trifecta for me was an interest in human behavior, an interest in criminal behavior, and then an interest in sexual criminal behavior. And that's why I worked in that area for so long. And that sounds really dark to some people, but I think with, and I don't want to call it an explosion of true crime, because I know true crime has been around forever. And if it's in its different ways, but obviously we can get it to the masses in easier ways now. And there's with the ability of just people like you and me being able to put out content, you know, that that certainly has left the the genre oversaturated. But I think people want that understanding and they'll find it where they can. And there are going to be some of those areas that you could go on Reddit and hear, you know. Jason's explanation as to whatever you want to read about, or you could go to a TV program that maybe has been like a little bit researched and maybe has a consultant, but they still got to do what they got to do to get the viewers. But if you want to take the time, you can go to people who are behavioral scientists, read what they have to say, listen to what they're saying, if it's court testimony get some journal articles, you know, start really diving in as deep and as clinical as you want to go to educate yourself. I don't think everyone's going to do that. So hence the reason we feel like our show is a little go-between where you can listen to it on your commute to work. We are going to cite articles and research and studies and experts working in the field, and we're going to give you a full web page of resources. We're going to give you a bibliography <laughs> to go with it um, if you want to go that way, or if you just want to trust us and hear what we have to say, you know, you can listen to that too. So yeah, it, it's human behavior. We, we just want to look inward, right? We want to look at those that act differently from us because we want to know why. So, you know, it's funny you say that uh, not everybody We'll go that deep, and I think you're true, but or think you're right, but I think that there's a real value to it. I was telling you before we started recording about the Twitter post uh, that was talking about the Long Island serial killer, and it was talking yeah. about the suspect they erect, arrested. And I was telling you the kind of like hilariousness of somebody saying, you know, he faced all the bodies north because he was a um, 
you know, architect, which is just absurd, <laughs> right? It's just totally absurd. And it's benign, right? And it's a relatively like benign comment. But I see how those ideas can have like a negative impact on society. And I'm just thinking about that particular case. You know, like a lot of the things that people say, like, oh, he must have killed all the victims or he killed these people in Los Angeles or all, not Los Angeles, Las Vegas and all these other places. Right. Well, some of it may be true, but what people are doing in that moment is they're taking pressure off of politicians and law enforcement, right? They're pointing the needle perhaps in the wrong direction when there's another um, suspect out there. So I, I do think there's a value to kind of like really people having a decent understanding of the way that humans work and the way that minds work, because like ultimately, you know, those of us who are not in law enforcement may feel like we have nothing to do with it, but like how we vote and how we yell and how we scream and what we throw out there does impact where the resources go and what happens. So I do think it's like really important. This is super fascinating conversation, dare I say, even engrossing conversation. <laughs> I really did. I really did enjoy it. I want to say for all you listeners, LA, Not So Confidential is the podcast. And uh, Shiloh and Scott also have a Patreon where you can support them and see some of those live shows. So let me go ahead and recommend that. And just thank you again, Shiloh. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity because I think Scott and I feel like we have a responsibility whenever someone asks us to come onto their show that we are bringing people a little bit back to center and not giving those, you know, wild sound bites that people might want to hear. And, you know, especially just a very casual conversation like this also lets people know that we're just human beings too. And we have personalities, um, but, you know, we can also buckle down and do the work so thank you again for the opportunity. You're welcome. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all next week.